0: From pandemic to deep freeze, a year of emergencies and price hikes. The supply lines are pressed and cost of living rises. But how much of that is honest versus good old fashioned price gouging? Lorian Gilbert from the Cornerstone Research joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk today. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in and being here. Today, we are once again talking about price gouging, which is different and distinct from price fixing, which we talked about a little bit earlier. And before we return to this topic, before we jump in, we need to thank our sponsor for their generous support, Noda. Noda is powered by MT Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. That's down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's known spelled Nota spelled N O T A. Terms and Conditions may apply. All right. Let's bring on our guest, Lorian Gilbert. Welcome to the show.
1: Great to be here. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for joining us today. Like I said, a little kind of indicated earlier in the uh, introduction. There, you know, we're talking about price gouging, and we did a show just earlier on price fixing. We did this; it was about this big Alaska case uh, against the poultry industry. There's like 21 different defendants in the poultry industry and food production, and it was a pretty migrating discussion. I didn't realize how many different suits for price fixing out there there were, but uh, it's been a while since we've done a discussion about price gouging. We did one early in the pandemic, and I was very concerned when I heard those those words. Fifteen days to flatten the curve. I was primarily concerned about our supply lines and how I, I know just in time delivery and what that means to everybody that produces a good and sells it to each other. You know, we rely on these um these high volume transportation mechanisms to deliver competitive low prices. And I knew when businesses were starting to close down, that that was going to get interrupted. And I was worried about people living on fixed incomes, people a little bit lower on the income scale. And uh, you know, you wrote a great article about this, and I want to get into that in a little bit. So it's uh, it's titled "Price Gouging and the Pandemic and Economic Perspective," and I'll put it in the show notes so people can check it out for themselves. But uh, you know, you work for Cornerstone Research, a relatively new group to us. So tell us about Cornerstone and tell us about the work you do there.
1: Yeah, so I'm an economist and the work at Cornerstone is primarily supporting expert witnesses who are giving expert testimony and opinions during a wide variety of complex litigation. So that could be an issue like price gouging. We also do a lot of work in the antitrust space and in many other areas.
0: Let's start with the basics of price gouging. So now I know Different states have different takes on when enforcement might apply. And I know the federal government is concerned with it as well. But just kind of across the board definition, sort of a universally understood definition, how do we define price gouging?
1: Yeah, great question. So you're right that a lot of the, the action is going to be at the state level. And what are price gouging laws is fundamentally about, they're about protecting consumers at, from exploitative price increases during a declared state of emergency. So across states, some of the common themes you're going to see is for price gouging laws to apply. First of all, there does have to be a declared state of emergency. It's not a blanket restriction on how firms can price to consumers. And then you're going to see that these laws are primarily targeting retailers and other firms that are selling direct to consumers. And that's going to have some interesting implications, you know, related to what you were were saying as you introduced the topic, right, that retailers are going to have be facing price restrictions, but not necessarily the wholesalers that they purchase from or the manufacturers further upstream. And that's going to be fairly common across states. The last element that state price gouging laws are going to have in common is that they have some notion of a price increase above which it's going to be considered price gouging. So you're going to compare the price before the emergency starts, to the price thereafter. And it might talk about just an excessive price, or there might be a specific threshold. So for example, in California, that would be a 10% price increase.
0: Okay. I'm going to weave in and out of your article for our discussion today. But uh, one of the early points you made in your article there uh, for Cornerstone Research was that there were kind of three basic different policy differences on how to handle price gouging and its impact uh, if there's a state of emergency. And so I want to go through those really quick and kind of talk about the pros and cons. So just want to focus on the policy elements. And then after that, I want to get into some of the legal implications. So let me start with this. So you made this argument, actually made the argument for price gouging as a way to reduce hoarding. Can you build that out a little bit?
1: Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm in favor of price gouging. But basically, you're right that there's going to be a trade-off between Price increases during a state of emergency and the potential that you could run into shortages as the result of hoarding, right? So let's take, for example, the infamous toilet paper hoarding at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Which none of us really expected was going to happen, right?
0: Not pleasant, but a shared experience. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so what was going on there, right, is that the price of toilet paper didn't really increase at the beginning of the, the pandemic, maybe a little bit, but not appreciably. And so that meant that consumers that were feeling a desire to stockpile for whatever reason, right, they could afford to do so because the prices hadn't really risen, right? So on the one hand, we're keeping unnecessary good affordable, but that leaves room for hoarding. That's where some, a retailer might come in and try to address the problem by instituting something like a purchase limit. The problem is they tend to do this a little too late after the problem has already been building up. And it's a pretty easy policy to evade, right? So if I'm desperate to hoard toilet paper, I can go from retailer to retailer, get in line, purchase up to the limit, and then move on to the next store. And so that's why just inherently when you're trying to keep goods affordable, but also available to consumers, there's going to be a trade-off between allowing price increases and facing potential shortages.
0: You kind of beat me to the punch. They're talking about some of these purchase limitations, and they certainly did that down here in Southern California. You know, not my favorite tool to use, but I definitely understand why, because I do think it kind of puts a little bit of a break on that, that propensity to hoard during an emergency. But I did notice it's going to increase the cost for anybody who's interested in buying those goods because it increases time that it's required to get everything that they need or want. And it's going to increase the expense because they have to drive around. So if you've got a big family, like, I mean, I'm a Costco shopper. They had a very limited quantity of hamburger meat you could buy. There was a very limited quantity of toilet paper or uh, paper towels you could buy. But if you have a big family, that's not going to be enough and you're going to have to go some other place. So that raises that consumption cost. But it also increases that fixed cost to sell those goods. So you're going to have those same employees on the floor, you know, stocking the shelves and everything, but you're selling to less people or less often. And so that's going to bring up that cost per transaction there. But I uh, want to get into those price gouging laws. So there's some pros and cons there. And then I just want, I just want to limit it right at the policy discussion, sort of the pros, cons, and then we'll get into legal, uh, legal implications. So let's start with that policy, pros, cons, price gouging laws.
1: The basic trade-off is just, on the one hand, if you increase prices, you know, allow price gouging to occur. Some consumers, particularly low-income consumers, might have a hard time affording goods that they need to make make their basic needs, right? So that's obviously something that policy tries to avoid. On the other hand, you, you you touched on the fact that instituting price gouging paired with purchase limits can impose other costs on people. So, for example, people with larger households, families, They may already, in in something like the pandemic, be experiencing particular disruption to their lifestyle, and now they've got additional costs associated with shopping around more frequently in order to, uh, to get the goods that they need.
0: Okay, so very, very much related to sort of those, those purchase limitations. Anything that limits those transactions, limits the ability to get, you know, also places some burdens on both the retailer and the customer. So let's transition over to the legal implications. Now, you got into it earlier, talked about that very important declaration of emergency. So if I'm a producer of any kind of good, when I hear those three magic words, my antenna goes up immediately. And so tell us why, what, what uh, rubric of law gets initiated both at the state and federal level once a declaration of emergency? Uh, has been made?
1: Well, I do want to clarify uh, that I am an economist uh, and and not a lawyer, so I I want to make sure I'm not offering anybody any legal counsel. But with that said, just general background, right? So when you go from uh, not being in a state of emergency to being in one, right now, state price gouging laws take effect. You need to think about, right, during the emergency, you might be experiencing an increase in your own costs. And, you know, you might want to kind of proceed business as usual. It might be your normal practice to pass those cost increases through to consumers. But you will want to consider the possibility that that's going to bring price gouging scrutiny. There's actually no federal anti-price gouging law that generally applies. But during the the pandemic, we have seen a little bit of federal action. So the uh, previous presidential administration did invoke the Defense Production Act and one of the provisions of the Defense Production Act is that you can take federal action against price gougers or firms that are stockpiling necessary goods. And so we have seen a little bit of that. It's been primarily focused on things like medical supplies, PPE at the federal level. But again, most of the action has been at the state level.
0: But you would say it's, it's typically true that primarily the governing body that enforces price gouging laws uh, tends to fall to the state, correct? Correct.
1: Generally the state, yeah. And it's going to be a lot of action by state AGs, right? They they can be very proactive uh, sending notices to firms that seem to be engaging in price gouging.
0: Now, you, you kind of spilled the beans just a little bit there that the federal <laughs> antitrust does not forbid price hikes per se. But uh, in your piece, you did mention that when price hikes occur, it can often invite an investigation. So can you can you elaborate a little more on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, right, you said it exactly right. Antitrust laws don't prohibit price increases, even by, you know, even a lawfully acquired monopoly is allowed to increase its price, set the price that it chooses. But at the same time, right, an emergency is a situation in which there's just generally increased scrutiny on pricing conduct, right, especially if you're a firm that's operating in an industry that's sort of a focal point, Maybe that's, you're making masks during the pandemic, during something like a natural disaster, it might be hotels. And so if you're in a focal industry or you're in an industry with relatively few firms, not only might you face price gouging scrutiny, that might extend, right? So imagine you do experience an increase in your cost. It's significant. You pass that through. Immediately, there might be questions about whether that was price gouging, right? They can't see from the outside that your costs increased. But that might spread, right? It might become a general inquiry into your pricing conduct generally from the antitrust perspective. That's not necessarily gonna happen, but we have seen it happen in the past, right? So one example is after hurricanes Katrina and Rita, there were some questions about whether price gouging was happening at gas stations, right? People trying to evacuate the disaster area. And there ended up being a joint FTC-DOJ in-depth research investigation where they looked not only at whether any price gouging had occurred, but they actually did a broader investigation into the industry generally. Was there any evidence of pricing conduct that would be an antitrust concern, price manipulation, that sort of thing?
0: Okay. And, uh, you know, I got into this a little early about the supply lines. And so kind of want to, everybody understands restaurants, everybody understands tourism and travel. And so obviously tourism traveled down during the pandemic. Restaurants were closed. And even if they were open, they were at reduced capacity, reduced business. And so a big part of the consumption of say uh, food food processing or food production was curtailed. And so you're not going to have as much food, you know, going to different parts of the country, whether it's train or a uh, truck or, or, or what have you. And so right then, and there, you know, your cost per mile is going to increase because you're not getting the benefit of those, uh, you're not getting the benefit of those uh, of those uh, volume-based transactions, and so that's going to lead to a higher baseline cost to deliver goods and services, you know, across the country. There, obviously, that's going to impact the final price to the consumer. And so, you know, what are some of the justifications even during a you know, stated uh, emergency declaration? There, you know, what are the firm justifications that a business can safely raise its prices during a troubled time?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and I, I think you know one thing to note is that this is an area where state laws really meaningfully vary. So many of them do recognize that when you're experiencing an increase in your own costs as a retailer, that would be a legitimate reason to increase your price, right? That's unrelated to attempting just to exploit consumers. Uh, but they can be a little. State laws don't always recognize the complexity of how firms price in practice. So first of all, once there's a price increase that meets the threshold for price gouging, the responsibility is on the firm to show that it is legitimately passing through an increase in its cost, right? So one challenge is the firm just needs to have the data on its own costs available to show that it was just passing through a cost increase. And then there can be some subtlety. So some state laws are gonna talk about literally just passing through the dollar value of your cost increase, right? So if your costs increase by $1 per unit, you can raise your price $1 per unit. But of course, that's not necessarily how all firms normally choose their pricing, right? They may use a percentage markup. And so that's something that firms need to be aware of and cautious about when they're responding to increases in their own cost during a state of emergency.
0: Again, you brought this up a little bit, talking about like some of these long standing pricing contracts. And so, if you were fortunate enough to get a low price, long term contract right before the pandemic, and you can pass that along to your consumers, you know, your competitors out there might not be able to do the same thing. So, now they have higher prices. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be subject to these uh, price gouging laws. It's just that they did not get the benefit of that long term, low price contract for the raw materials, correct?
1: Exactly. Right. And that and that's one challenge that we see with price gouging laws is some of them have in mind that in order to figure out if a firm's price was reasonable, we'll just take a look at their price in comparison to competitor firms. But you highlighted exactly one of the challenges there, right? The fact that my cost rose doesn't mean that my competitors cost rose. If we're under different contract arrangements, we have a different supply chain. And so that can be a challenge as well.
0: Now, I want to get back to your piece that you, you cited one of these issues true to my heart, the customer loyalty program. And so <laughs> during, during the pandemic, I've become a much more uh, intelligent shopper. So I'm looking for some of those, uh, you know, big bulk discounts. But I also look at these, de- uh, you know, sort of these details in the sale at my local grocery shop. And one of the things they have is you can, go, you can do one of these customer loyalty programs through their card. And, you know, as long as uh, I buy uh, the requested quantity, um, I'll get a certain price. And some of this can get pretty extreme. So like, for example, I like to buy a lot a diet coke, <laughs> and so I'll buy bottles of diet coke. Usually in four or five, I buy four or five at the same time. Those like those two-liter bottles, you know, I can save about thirty percent on that, which is a pretty good deal for me. But you said in your article that sometimes price gouging and antitrust issues can overlap, and so stores need to be careful with these customer loyalty programs. Let's let's talk about that a little more.
1: The loyalty program is one example of a situation in which a firm that is just trying to compete with rivals in the market might end up looking like it's doing something that might qualify not only as, as price gouging in an emergency, but maybe they might end up in some antitrust issues as well. So imagine that a retailer, you know, it is facing an increase in its cost, its supply chain has encountered some issues. And so it decides to pass through some of that cost increase to its its customers. Right, so first of all, that might trigger a bit of price gouging scrutiny, but imagine it decides to, you know, in order to still compete for customers, even though it's had to raise prices, institute a loyalty program, right? You you buy into the loyalty program, you purchase from the store, and you get essentially a discount that helps to compensate for the increase in prices. The problem is there, imagine that this program is really successful and and the, the firm does win a lot of customers with this strategy. That might be something where there starts to be a question of whether they are trying to lock in customers in a way that would prevent an efficient rival from actually competing for those customers' business. Business, and in that situation, that's where you might get into some antitrust questions, particularly if the seller is a larger seller.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so so be careful with that if you're offering that as a store or retailer. So, let, let, last question for you, Lorian. So, um, you know the aftermath. And this concerned me when I, I first heard those words, 15 days to flatten the curve. I was really worried that uh, you know these price increases that were going to come, were going to become permanent. And we'll probably see that. I, In my life experience, you know prices tend to go up. They don't tend to, to come down unless there's a competitive reason to do so. And since the pandemic began, we've lost a lot of businesses, so the competition is down. But businesses also got hurt in a pretty big way. So they're going to probably want to make up for some of those losses that they incurred. And so I guess just this is a policy matter, and I realize that you're not an attorney, but uh, you know, what, what kind of policy recommendation would you have out there to customers, consumers, retailers out there regarding this long-term high prospect of increased prices permanently?
1: Well, I think I would just say that when a state of emergency ends, there might be a general perception that firms' costs have fallen, right? But the question is, is that really true or not, right? So we talked, for example, about Pricing contracts. It might be that during a state of an emergency, a retailer has had to agree to contractual terms that are less favorable than what it got from before the emergency, like the pandemic. And it might be that those contracts don't, you know, immediately unwind right when the emergency ends. Right. So we might see a continued increase in price. Sometimes that can even trigger discussion about, you know, is this evidence of an exercise of market power? But there may be legitimate pro-competitive explanations, right? If a firm is just actually facing continued increased costs and you know those may dissipate over time rather than immediately.
0: Well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here.
0: And if our listeners, they want to learn more about your work, what's the best place to find you?
1: They can find us, uh, find me on Cornerstone's website. It's just uh, cornerstone.com.
0: And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We appreciate you being here with us. Without you, there's no show, and that's definitely no fun. So, again, thank you so much. And one more big thank you to our sponsor, the fine folks at Nota. You can find them at trustnota.com forward slash legal. That's nota spelled N-O-T-A. Check them out. And last but certainly never least, thank you to our team producer, Molly McDonough, and our LT and audio crew for their continued hustle. This has been Legal Talk today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody.
1: Oh, my oh,